from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Happy Halloween, everybody, and welcome to the Folklife Today podcast. I'm Stephen Winnick, a folklorist at the American Folklife Center of the Library of Congress, and I'm here with John Fenn, the head of research and programs for the center. Hello, everyone. If you've been a listener to our podcast or a reader of the Folklife Today blog, you'll know that Steve's a bit of a Halloween fanatic. True story. But this year, we have some other reasons to celebrate also. That is right. I actually launched the Folklife Today blog purposely on Halloween 2013. So this is the 10th Halloween we have celebrated with spooky or supernatural blog posts. Actual fact. And... The Folklife Today podcast began on Halloween 2018, so that makes this the fifth Halloween episode of the podcast. So happy blogiversary and podversary to us. To celebrate all this, we have revised and updated our Halloween Collections Guide, which is really a fun guide to Halloween content in the Library of Congress, from old books about witchcraft to pictures of ghosts, and of course, songs and stories from oral tradition preserved in the American Folklife Center archive. You can find the guide at guides.loc.gov slash Halloween. So now let's get to some spooky stories. What should we start with? Well, since you mentioned witchcraft, how about witches? Nothing is more iconic of Halloween than classic witch tales. And in the American Folklife Center archive, we have some great ones. Recorded from the singer and activist Aunt Molly Jackson in 1939. Alan Lomax made these recordings in New York City where Jackson lived at the time. And for anyone who might not be familiar with her, Aunt Molly Jackson was one of the most documented traditional singers in history, having recorded for Alan Lomax, Mary Elizabeth Barnacle, John Greenway, Archie Green, and others. She was born in Clay County, Kentucky in about 1880, and she began learning songs from her great-grandmother, Nancy McMahon, at an early age. As a young teenager, she married Jim Stewart, the miner who told her the witch story we're going to hear. She became a nurse and a midwife, which led her to having the nickname Aunt from a surprisingly young age. After Jim Stewart was killed in a mine accident, Aunt Molly married another miner named Bill Jackson. They also divorced, but she kept his name as her professional moniker. Right, and then in 1931, Aunt Molly Jackson traveled to New York City to play benefit concerts for striking miners in Kentucky, and she remained mostly based in New York City from late 1931 until 1943. And in this era, she met her final husband, Gus Stamos, who was known to his friends as Tom, and she performed and socialized with many people in that era's folk music scene, including Woody Guthrie, Lead Belly, Pete Seeger, Earl Robinson, and of course, Alan Lomax. Her younger siblings, Jim Garland and Sarah Ogan Gunning, also frequently visited her and performed with her. So Aunt Molly Jackson and Tom Stamos later moved to the West Coast, and Aunt Molly died in 1960 and is buried in Sacramento, California. Alan Lomax conducted extensive recording sessions with Aunt Molly in 1935, 1937, and 1939, leading to over 180 songs and spoken word pieces by her in AFC's disc-era collections. So the 1939 sessions occurred in Lomax's apartment in New York, and they included this witch story. This witch story was told to me by my husband, 
Jim Stewart. His brother, youngest brother, Albert Stewart, he told me, uh, began to have some kind of strange fit. His father, Ike Stewart, he went and, and called the doctor in. And when the doctor come and looked at the child, he said there was nothing he could do for the child because that he was, uh, he was bewitched and uh, advised him to get a witch doctor. So they called in a witch doctor. This witch doctor told uh, the uh, mother of the child they would be someone in that house to borrow something or to try to get away with a little, just a little thread or rag or something out of the house and not to let any anybody have anything out of the house. And first and all, the old lady neighbor that lived near them, she came for a half a pint of cornmeal. And Miss Seward refused the cornmeal. Then she come back for a needle uh, full of sewing thread and she refused it. And when she refused her of the sewing thread, when she started out of the house, she uh, when she started out of the house, she grabbed up a string in the floor and tried to get away with it, and and Miss Stewart struck her in the the mother of the child struck her in the back with a broom and and uh, knocked the uh, knocked the string out of her hand and she run down the pathway about 15 feet from the house and fell in the road and began to take the same kind of fits that the child was taking and died in the road. But before she come, when uh, when this witch doctor was working with this child, why uh, his elbows would fly out of joint and his knees would fly out of joint, uh, just like the child, and he was all in perspiration of sweat. And uh, as soon as this old woman fell dead in the path with a fit, well, that was the last fit that the child had, and the spell was broke, and he never did have another spell like that in his life. My husband told me this story to be the truth, Jim Stewart. Again, that was Aunt Molly Jackson telling a witch tale from our collections. There are actually three interview segments about witches, witch doctors, and witchcraft in this collection. Aunt Molly told Lomax how people became witches, how witches could be killed, how witches rode people at night, and how witch doctors got the power to counteract witchcraft. The other segments are all presented along with the one you just heard in the blog at blogs.loc.gov folklife. Yeah, so please visit the blog and take a look at the post from this October. You'll find several Halloween posts, not only witches, but a great ghost story too. This one is told by John Jackson, who is probably best known as a blues musician. He was one of the most significant Black Appalachian musicians to become part of the folk and blues revival. His roots in the Virginia mountains put him at the nexus of Piedmont blues, rural gospel, early ballads, and old-time string band music. This broad repertoire allowed him to fit comfortably in the category of songster, but he also embraced the term bluesman. 
He grew up playing music, which he learned mainly from a very musical family in which everyone sang and played multiple instruments. He also learned from recordings of such masters as Mississippi John Hurt and the Carter family. He played many house parties and dances in his teens and 20s, but he stopped playing in public in the mid-1940s after witnessing a violent fight at a party where he was performing. He just decided it wasn't worth it. Right. And because of this, by 1960, very few people knew he played. You know, they were friends of his, but they didn't know that he played outside the house. But his mail carrier once saw him in the yard playing guitar and asked him for a lesson. And John Jackson was a very nice guy and he obliged and they agreed to meet in the gas station where the mailman had a second job. And this was all very lucky because the folklorist Chuck Perdue happened to be getting gas and witnessed this lesson, realizing Jackson was pretty special as a player. So he introduced himself and they struck up a friendship in which Purdue worked to encourage and promote John Jackson as a musician. And this led Jackson to meet and play with most of the prominent blues musicians in his area, including John Cephas, Phil Wiggins, Archie Edwards, Warner Williams, and Jay Summerauer. He was certainly a rare talent, and he was awarded a National Heritage Fellowship in 1986 by the National Endowment for the Arts. And John Jackson was also a favorite here at the American Folklife Center during our formative and early years. He was one of several musicians to play at the reception celebrating AFC's founding in February of 1976. He also played in our Neptune Plaza concert series in 1983 and again in 1986. But less well-known than his musical prowess was John Jackson's talent as a storyteller. Although he occasionally worked tales into his concert performances, he particularly loved stories about the supernatural and those he mostly told privately. He was personally convinced of the existence of supernatural creatures such as ghosts and the nightmare based on his own experiences and stories his friends had recounted to him. And he might have had more occasion to experience the supernatural than most of us since during a good part of his life he made his living as a grave digger in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. Oh, wow, that's some real credibility there. A ghost story told by a grave digger? Yeah, but we should say that this story is not from personal experience, this particular one, but it's a tale told to him by his mother. And as is common in telling secondhand tales, you can hear that Jackson begins many of the segments with the word said, reminding us that this was something his mother said, not something he witnessed himself. So this is a story he called The Preachers and the Spooks. Let's hear it. Mama told the tale one of the house, but nobody could stay at it. He said, hired this preacher to go along and stay. He said, he was going to stay and find out what these ghosts were. He said, he got down, made him a good fire in the fireplace, and sat back smoking his pipe. He said, finally, said, a little cat come whining. He said, he let him in and come to playing with him. He said, the cat laid by the fire so long and got warm and stressed out. And he said, and after lay it down a few minutes, that he saw the dog dog sleep was pretty dead. And said he happened to think about the cat and looked over with a red big spotted dog with the biggest red eyes and a red tongue looking at him. Hmm. Said the preacher comes to back his eyes and looking. Said he comes to getting bigger. Said all at once that the preacher just rolled up and went right out the window <laughs> and, and lay. Said it wasn't long. Said his book was too much for him. He went and told where the signs were. Another preacher come in and said he was going on going to stay. He said he went on in and made him up a good fire and sat down. Said and finally after he sat down for a while and the fire got to going good. Said all at once something rolled down the fireplace and knocked fire all over the floor everywhere. Said the old preacher jumped up and took the broom and swept it back. 
that it didn't see nothing, so it just sat down. Said, finally, two little dogs shared down and sat down on the floor, played down. And said, after a while, it turned in and got bigger and bigger. That old preacher sat down, kept looking at smoking pipe and singing a hymn. Yeah, my God, did that. He sat back on the couple singing. Said, finally, said it finally phoned in the two little boys, and then it phoned in the two men. Said the preacher asked, said, what in the name of the Lord do you want? And said, the people that the first people who share killed us and buried us here and buried us down in the floor. Said if you dig us up and tell everybody where we're at, said I'll go away and never come back no more. Mm. And said the next day he went and told the people what he found and said the show enough the dead and dug up and found two dead bodies down in the mm. floor while the people had killed them and buried them down in the lot. Mm. And the house never was cooking no more after Again, John Jackson with a great ghost story, The Preachers and the Spooks. And we should say that this podcast features three storytellers with regional accents, and you may not understand every word, but there is a transcript on the Library of Congress website. Go to loc.gov slash podcasts, and then look for Folklife Today and this episode, and there's a download link for a text transcription, which will tell you what I think they're saying, because I did these transcriptions. (laughs) Right on. Um, So the next story we're going to hear comes from the folklorist Jack Santino. It's the tale of Jack-O-Lantern. Right, and the background to this is another of those great anniversaries. Jack Santino gave a lecture here about Halloween on October 29th, 1982, 40 years ago to the very day we released this episode. I saw Jack about two weeks ago, and when I mentioned this anniversary was coming up, he said, I thought you were going to say 25. (laughs) Jack. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. And this lecture has been the gift that keeps on giving for us. It became the basis of an article that Jack allowed us to put online. And in the early days of the internet, we put it in gopher space, if you remember what that was. And it has been one of the most popular features on our website since we've had a website. Uh, Now it has a home on the Folklife Today blog. And a few years ago, I got hold of the digitized audio and realized that it was a real gem, much more detailed than the essay version. And as part of the lecture, Jack even tells the story about the origin of the jack-o'-lantern, which includes tricky spirits and the devil himself. So we're going to give Jack the last word in this episode, but that means doing our thank yous right now. So thanks to Aunt Molly Jackson, Alan Lomax, John Jackson, Chuck Perdue, and Jack Santino. Thanks also to John Gold, our audio engineer. And thanks to our colleagues throughout the Library of Congress who help us with this podcast. And again, the web addresses you need are guides.loc.gov slash Halloween for our fantastic Halloween guide and blogs.loc.gov slash Folklife for the Folklife Today blog. Thanks for listening to Folklife Today, and you'll be hearing Jack Santino and his version of the Jack-O-Lantern. In England and in Ireland and Scotland, the practice of carving jack-o'-lanterns exists as it exists here in the United States, but with a difference. The difference is that in Britain, the jack-o'-lantern is considered to be a real person, a spirit, not unlike the ghosts and goblins that we've been talking about, a mischievous spirit, somebody who will lead you astray. And there are a great many folktales that surround the story of jack-o'-lantern. There are many, many stories in which he plays a prank on a person who deserves a prank played on him. We in America, of course, carve out pumpkins. In England, they didn't have pumpkins. Pumpkins were introduced to us by Indians. 
introduced to the colonists by the Native Americans. And in Britain, they carved turnips and rutabagas and other large fruits, which probably comes as something of a surprise to many of us. And it's probably hard to imagine carving out a turnip in the, in the shape of a jack-o'-lantern. But it's, it's done. It's done to this day. And it was done uh, before the pumpkin was discovered. But the story of jack-o'-lantern is one I think I'll tell at this point. There is a story as to how the spirit became who and what he is. And it's a traditional folktale, so, and there are various versions of it. So what I'll be telling you is one ver version of it. It does have other, other versions. But the story goes that there was a blacksmith at one point named Jack. And he made a deal with the devil, a Faustian sort of deal with the devil, in which he promised the devil his soul in return for great powers and abilities particularly to be known as the best blacksmith on the face of the earth. So the devil gladly granted him this boon in return for his everlasting soul and left it that he would return in seven years to collect his end of the bargain. Jack the blacksmith then held a sign, hang a sign up out in front of his shop, which said, herein lives the greatest of all masters. Well, the story goes that in heaven, St. Peter brought this to the attention of Christ, who felt that maybe the blacksmith was getting a little uppity with his, his claim. So one day, Christ and St. Peter visit the blacksmith in his shop and challenge his claim that he is the greatest of all masters. And the two, they go back and forth, each performing miracles, trying to outdo each other. And the blacksmith never does quite as well, but he never accepts the fact that he's not the greatest of the great. Finally, in exasperation, St. Peter turns to him and says, if you had three wishes, what would you wish for? So the blacksmith said, well, he thought about it a little bit, and he said, well, the first thing I would wish for is that if I invited somebody to sit in my chair, that they would be unable to get out of it until I gave them permission. He then wished that if he invited somebody to climb his pear tree or his apple tree, that they'd be unable to climb down until he gave them his permission. And finally, he said, if anyone ever get, put their hand into my purse, that it will be stuck there. The person will be unable to get out of my purse until I allow them to. Peter turns to him and says, you have wished very foolishly because you could have wished for everlasting peace in heaven. But the blacksmith says, no, I know what I'm doing. So dejectedly, St. Peter and Christ leave. Seven years passes, and the devil comes to collect his due. And the blacksmith is working on a piece of iron, and he says, well, just go ahead and have a seat, and I'll be with you in a minute. <laughs> well, of course, the devil can't get out of the seat, and the and, and the blacksmith tells him he's not going to let him out of the seat until he gives him another seven years of immortality. Gladly granted. Seven years goes by, devil comes back, sends him up the tree to get him a piece of fruit while he's waiting. Goes up the tree, same story, he's not, he cannot get down, another seven years. The third time he comes back, he says, you're not going to trick me this time. And they go off, and they start walking the road to hell. And as they're going, they come to a toll booth, and the blacksmith's... Right. The, the blacksmith says he's, he's tied. The, the devil has tied him up because he wasn't going to take any chances with him. And he said, well, perhaps you could shrink down and go into my purse and get the money out, which, of course, the devil does and finds to his dismay that he cannot get out of the purse. And at this time, the blacksmith frees himself and takes some of his tools and starts beating the, the, the purse with his tools. The devil screams and yelps and, and, and finally says, look, I'll give you complete freedom from your original promise. I'll never, ever come back for your soul. 
So the blacksmith tricked the devil out of his out of his original promise. Some more time went by, and eventually the blacksmith died, as, as everybody must, and he went up to heaven. When he got to heaven, St. Peter says to him, I'm sorry, you had your chance, but you made a deal with the devil, you did not live an honorable life, and you're not allowed into heaven. So Jack decides, well, there's only one place left, and decides to go down to hell. As he approaches hell, the devil spots him and immediately starts locking all nine bolts <laughs> to the gate of hell. And as the door is closing, Jack runs in and says, wait, wait, I have no home. I must, I, you must let me in. And the devil says, I'm sorry, you gave me too much trouble while you were alive. Frankly, I never want to see you here again. And as he was closing the gate, Jack, who happened to be eating a turnip, scooped out a coal from hell to light his way because he was not able to get in either to hell or to heaven, and he was doomed to wander the earth as a soul without a place of rest. And that's the story of Jack O'Lantern. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.